The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. In your headlines this hour, fresh trade tensions after the U.S. government pulls out of talks with European countries over digital tax plans, dashing hopes of a global deal and revising the prospect of tariffs. We need an, an international regime that not only focuses on certain size and certain, certain industries, but, but, but where we generally agree as to how we're going to tax people internationally. Brussels launches an antitrust probe into Fiat Chrysler and PSA's $50 billion mega-merger, citing concerns over their dominant market share in the small vans market. And Asian markets trade lower, but JD.com rallies on the e-commerce giant's $3.8 billion Hong Kong debut. A bombshell new book claims President Trump has turned to China to help him win the 2020 election, with author and former National Security Advisor John Bolton also claiming the US leader has offered favours to dictators during his White House tenure. Plus, the Bank of England is expected to expand its bond-buying plan but steer clear of negative rates, despite Governor Andrew Bailey saying they are, quote, under active review. So welcome to the program. The US has pulled out of digital tax talks with Europe, citing a lack of progress and threatening tariffs if countries try to push ahead with their own levies. That's after the Financial Times revealed a letter had been sent to four European finance ministers. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin reportedly said discussions had reached an impasse and that attempting to rush the talks was a distraction from more important matters, primarily the COVID-19 economic response. The UK, France, Italy and Spain have all proposed taxes that target US tech giants, including Facebook, Alphabet and Google. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer confirmed the move at a House Ways and Means Committee hearing on America's trade agenda. We need an an international regime that not only focuses on certain size and certain certain industries, but 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 where we generally agree as to how we're going to tax people internationally. So I think there is there's there's clearly room for a negotiated settlement. At at that point. Um, we were making no headway, and the secretary made the decision that, that, that rather than have them go off on their own, he would, he would just say we're no longer involved in the negotiations. Robert Lighthizer there. Well, viewers will know that this story has been rattling around global markets for at least a couple of years. And back in January at the World Economic Forum, I asked Secretary Mnuchin for his response to the principle of a digital tax. Let's have a listen. We think that the digital tax is discriminatory in nature. There's an OECD process that we're participating in. International tax issues are very complicated. They take long times to look at. And, uh, you know, if uh, if people want to just arbitrarily put taxes on 
uh, on our digital companies will consider arbitrarily putting taxes on car companies. Well, that was Secretary Mnuchin way back in January, which uh, gives you a sense, I guess, of potentially where we could go from here, Karen and Steve. Uh, Mr Mnuchin at that point suggesting there will will be uh, reciprocal tariffs placed on European products if these taxes go ahead. And now the talks have been called off. Karen, it would seem that that is the direction that we're now heading in. Stephen Mnuchin is now using the distraction of COVID-19, saying that he wants the talk suspended because of the pandemic that everybody's dealing with. But the reality is that individual countries have been agitating for change on digital taxes and then have suspended or pulled back on some of these, hoping that there'll be some international accord through the OECD. If you look at France, that was the one that was the clear and present danger for a lot of the international investors. There was a tit-for-tat trade war that was starting to play out, first on digital goods against the those American companies are digital taxes and then on some of the luxury uh, goods that are produced by those big French companies. So both deciding not to proceed and standing down. But effectively, uh, that was in lieu of uh, conversations expected to take place at that uh, international level. And Europe, of course, pushing ahead with its own plans as well. And Europe is so sure that the money belongs to it. And the recent seven-year budget that it drew up, it allocated 1.3 billion euros per year from digital taxes. Now, of course, some European companies come into the mix, but many of them are American companies. We're talking about Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google, all of the major companies that uh, earn revenue over here in Europe, but don't pay any tax on it because there's no physical goods. A lot of it's uh, services, digital services. So uh, the correcting the, the playing field, you've got to say, is incredibly important for European companies. If you think about what we've been talking about in recent weeks, we've been talking about an acceleration in those digital trends, that the biggest digital companies get bigger. Uh, so if the revenue is not being received anywhere in Europe, how do these populations manage to climb out of economic recession, you've got to say? And the time is right, if never before, for those European countries to go after the digital taxes. And I would say from the European perspective, as a collective, organising a collective voice is much easier to go after the United States than having individual fights per country. But that's exactly what the Americans want at this point, trying to delay any change. So I just kick it out to Steve, because I know he's also been having these conversations around digital taxes with Bruno Le Maire, the, the finance minister in France. Steve. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, three more unsurprised anchors you could not find. I mean, look, I I went through this all last year with our viewers at the finance minister's meeting in Chantilly, and I went through it again when we had Biarritz, and I thought any Entente Cordiale, which was transatlantic, was illusory then, and I think it now. Uh, In between then, we spoke to Angel Gurria, who manfully, and I admire Angel Gurria very much as a person, and indeed in his efforts uh, to get a digital tax agreement on a pan-global basis, but let's face it, Angel has failed up to date. And in fact, in October last year, I was looking at an old CNBC interview. He said we could have one by June. We're in June and there's zero chance. Then he told us earlier this year, there's a chance by the end of the year. I think that's very, very unlikely at the moment. So I'm afraid having a pan-global digital tax has failed. Now let's get back onto the Europeans. There are a lot of European nations who don't want this, who don't want any form of digital tax because they look at it in a different way. And we must remember the commission may be speaking in one way on this, talking for Europe. But the fact of the matter is some countries just want the jobs, just want the employment, just want the the manufacturing facilities and the productivity that that will 
will bring to countries such as Ireland, to countries such as the Netherlands as well. So there are many countries who are thinking, actually, they don't mind if a digital tax goes away in some ways because they would prefer to have the income generated by the job creation. And of course, at the moment, when I'm outside the Bank of England talking about job creation, that is absolutely key as well. The final point I want to make as well is this is about slice of the pie, isn't it? And let's face it, the US wants to tax their digital companies as much as anyone else as well. And if someone is taking the pie before it goes home to their tax jurisdiction, then of course that is a problem uh, for the US Treasury because they want to get as large a, uh, a slice of the pie when they are upping their debt loads by trillions uh, as well. I will make one more, more final point, and that is the fact, isn't this about an ignominious failure of Europe as much as anything else as well? An ignominious failure of Europe to have the tech titans, so that it would be European tech titans uh, being taxed as much as the US ones. Back to you both. Yeah, I think they're terrific points, guys. And, and just to throw Eric Schmidt into the mix here, the BBC had a terrific conversation with Eric Schmidt, formerly of Google, addressing primarily Huawei. But I think it strays into the point that you make here, Steve. If we're going to take on the Chinese, then we should outcompete them and come up with smarter technology. And I think the message also applies in this context to what you're saying about Europe. If you don't like the American tech companies and what they're doing, then let's have some European giants that can take them on at their own game. Guys, we'll come back to you in just a minute and Steve will catch up with you. I think you need an umbrella down at the Bank of England this morning, but we'll hear some more about the weather forecast and also the monetary policy forecast in just a moment. Not that the uh, Americans feel that their own tech companies are behaving well, the US Justice Department is proposing to roll back protections for big tech. Under the current law, social media platforms do not have to bear responsibility for their users' posts. But the new proposal could force them to take action against criminal content online, as well as increase transparency around moderating their platforms. This comes after the president vowed to crack down on tech giants after Twitter added a fact-check notice to some of his tweets early in May. Uh, the European Commission has launched an investigation into the planned $50 billion mega-merger between Fiat Chrysler and France's Peugeot, citing concerns over reduced competition in the lucrative small commercial van market. In a joint statement, the carmakers said they will cooperate with the probe in a, quote, constructive spirit. Well, Charlotte, this was uh, well flagged up. We knew that uh, the EU was looking closely at the commercial van market. But to what extent now is this going to stall or even potentially derail this deal? You're right. That was very much expected, uh, this uh, problem from the Commission on the potential market share that FC and PSA could have in the van sector. That's the one really that they're looking at. So small vans below 3.5 tons. Uh, so now it, we were expecting the details of what the objections are. So they said that they think that the, the merge group could have too much, co uh, too much of a competitive advantage in 14 countries in the Union, and that includes France, Spain, and Italy, and even the UK. Um, so now they say that they will uh, put this in-depth investigation to look at how much a joint, um, a joint company, the joint, um, the merch company would have this advantage in the, in the country. Uh, it's a very profitable uh, share of the market, the aspect of the market therefore for this group. It's, um, it's at about 25% uh, of the market share goes to PSA and 9% for FCA overall in the country. So now they will look country by country. They think uh, that in France they have 44% of the market share in that specific segment. It's about 
45% in Italy. So now the question is the Commission has to look in depth of in one market or how um, this could distort competition in those markets here. So the choices there for PSA and FCA uh, could be to take one of the brands out because fr from what we've learned in the past in similar cases, I'm thinking particularly of Scania and Volvo, it's not only just market share, there's also um, the price that are available to customers and the available availability over the territory overall for customers to be able to access different brands as well. So it's not just market share, it's all these different aspects that they have to weigh in uh, to look at whether this joint, this merge uh, company would have too much of a competitive advantage. So now the new deadline is October 22nd for the Commission to come up with their conclusions. In the meantime, PSA and FCA say uh, that they stick to the, the calendar that they had. That's the thing. So that because this, these um, objections from the Commission was very much expected, the calendar that they have of closing the deal in the first quarter of 2021 would take this uh, investigation into account. So we don't expect a delay if things go to plan and the companies have very much expected this objection for the Commission. Jeff. Charlotte, thank you very much indeed for that. Let's have a, a quick look at the pound uh, as we throw out to Steve at this point. Uh, sterling is running into heavy weather around the 126 handle, uh, as is our very own Gene Kelly down at the Bank of England. Steve. <laughs> well, I'm singing in the rain, my friend. You should come and join me. <laughs> anyway, coming up on the show, fresh powder. Is it going to be dry powder? Who knows? But the Bank of England looks set to roll out increased asset purchases as the central bank... Well, is it aiming to shore up UK government finances? That's a bit of a sore point, but we'll discuss, of course, that uh, and the Bank of England's reaction to the pandemic. More on a dry and breezy day here in London after the break on Squawk Box. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, and we reopen here with this sobering statistics from the COVID-19 death and infection rate here. 8.3 million confirmed cases, 448,000 confirmed deaths. Global markets then have taken their line from this count and have retreated from their recent rally amid a resurgence in new coronavirus cases in parts of the US and Beijing. Infections have spiked at a record daily rate in Florida, Arizona and Texas. New cases are also on the rise in Oklahoma, where President Trump is due to host a rally this weekend. Meanwhile, in Beijing, Chinese authorities have quarantined entire neighborhoods after recording 137 new cases in the past six days. Scores of flights have also been cancelled. Schools have once again closed their doors overnight. Don't know whether you saw the announcement uh, from Qantas, the Australian airline, but they've effectively said they're going to be grounded pretty much all the way through uh, to October. Well, what does that mean then for the way our futures are going to trade here? Let's have a look. We're 105 points lower at the implied open for the Dow Jones at this stage. Sentiment would appear to be negative as we come into the trading session. The US markets, well, the overnight picture 
picture, as you can see here, um, the Nasdaq just about managing to crawl over the positive line here, but the Dow Jones and the S&P both closing out the session negative yesterday. Let's have a closer look at the technology stocks. There are a lot of stories floating around around the tech companies at the moment. And interesting, I think, that the market uh, decided that uh, Facebook and Twitter had come far enough. But there is still some broad support on these pullback days for areas where speculative investors feel there is still a growth opportunity. So that's uh, the picture on some of these major technology companies. It's not to say that there aren't still a lot of voices out there suggesting that this market has gone way too far, way too quickly. Just the latest, Jeremy Grantham, the co-founder of investment company GMO, he says investors are creating a major market bubble by ignoring the realities of the pandemic. Speaking on CNBC's closing bell, Grantham warned investors to stay away from U.S. equities. Sell, you know, U.S. 100%, buy emerging and throw the key away for a few years and you'll have a story uh, for your grandchildren about how you outperformed uh, the investment professionals and everybody else. Jeremy Grantham. Meanwhile, Chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Jay Clayton, has told CNBC markets continue to function well despite the rise in volatility and shifts in investor sentiment. We had the what, what I would refer to kind of using the trading vernacular as a, a giant risk off shift, flight to liquidity. Um, we had intervention from the Fed uh, supported by the Treasury and, and the legislation. Uh, that all facilitated uh, that shift in investor sentiment. Through that, the markets functioned uh, about as well as I could reasonably expect. Uh, we were monitoring them closely. We had some we had some days with trading halts. We had a number of limit up, limit down issues. Overall, uh, the functioning of our, our equity markets, and we also look at the fixed income markets, but overall, the functioning of the markets um, held up very well. Jay Clayton from the SEC. Fed Chair Jerome Powell has resumed his call for a rise in U.S. government spending to help bolster the country's economy against the virus. Powell told lawmakers in his second day of testimony, the U.S. is beginning to recover from the pandemic. But he added, more fiscal help is needed. It would be wise to, to look at ways to continue to support both people who are out of work and also smaller businesses that may not have vast resources for, for a continued period of time, not forever, but for a period of time so that uh, we can get through this critical phase. This is the, the economy is just now beginning to recover. It's a critical phase, and I think that support would be well, well placed at this time. Jay Powell. Well, the Bank of England is expected to raise its bond buying program by £100 billion today as the central bank looks to help the UK recover from the pandemic. And Steve, I know there were uh, a lot of analysts wondering overnight, given how weak that inflation read was that we had yesterday, whether the bank may be inclined to do more at this stage. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, let's just go through the numbers. The Bank of England will be very prickly if you say to them, you are just financing the UK government. But look, here's, here's a nice little succinct stat. I actually picked this one up in the FT, but got some great CNBC copy on it as well. Um, the gilt issuance since the start of this crisis in March has been £152 billion sterling. The gilt purchases by the Bank of England has been £148 billion sterling. Go do your math. I is pretty much on a one-to-one -one ratio is it as well. 
they basically said back, obviously previously, that they were going to increase QE by 200 billion pounds. Now they've got around about 50 odd billion of that left, which means that 14 billion a week they're going to run out in July sometime. So if they want to carry through to October, it might take more than 100 billion, maybe 150. Some are talking about as much as 200 billion as well. Interest rates, by the way, we're not going to see any movement on that as well just yet. 0.1 of a percent is where they are. It's where they were cut at the start of this crisis, down from 0.75 as well. And in terms of negative rates, I think that's a story for another day, and we'll discuss that as well. Well, um, because at the moment, Andrew Bailey's done a little bit of a U-turn talking to parliamentarians recently saying it's under active review. But of course, there's lots of us out there and lots of economists who are very sceptical about the use of negative rates. But Jeff, what I want to talk to you about, uh, and maybe I want your comment as well, if I may, is inflation. Now, I know inflation is the is the, set, the, the, the scapegoat, the bogeyman, the thing that's not happening at the moment. And you mentioned that latest data of 0.51%, so considerably below the 2% level, which is the target for many countries around the world. Why it's 2%, who knows? But Tim Cogden, um, who's an economist, of course, quoted from his group, which is the Institute of International Monetary Research in the Times Day, he's saying, watch out for inflation. Maybe not this year, but next year, because the amount of money that's being created around the world, with a 27.5% increase in money in the States this year, a 15% increase in money in the UK this year, inflation could absolutely roar back and become a real problem. And I want to tie that back into your Jeremy Grantham comments as well, because understandable why these great gurus of the market, although they've missed the rally, uh, think that we're going down and we're creating asset bubbles. But when you've got the quantity of money going up so aggressively, it's not just headline inflation that could be a result of that, of course. It's a whole host of asset classes, and that takes us back to equities as well. I don't know what you think, my friend. Yeah, this is fascinating. Look, I just finished a very interesting book called The Great Wave, written by an economist, uh, a, a, a historian called Fisher, uh, back in the 90s, which talks about the four great waves of inflation and what the consequences are on societies. And he has clearly identified this current phase as a major wave towards an inflation peak. And yet when you look at the official inflation data, it is very hard to find it in terms of CPI and RPI. What is clear though, and it's something that he alludes to, is sometimes you do not need to see prices go up. It's enough that you see incomes go down. And that's the reality, that even as uh, the inflation numbers officially don't look high, as people feel it and it's expressed in their inability to maintain their living standards, it is clear that people are feeling what we would traditionally describe as the consequences of inflation. You're running harder and harder to keep up with rising prices, only in this case, it doesn't help that the prices are not going up because your income is going down. And unfortunately, what COVID has done is it's decimated for a lot of people household income. So I think this is the irony that we're all looking in one place to see what's going on with the inflation data. But in reality, the consequences for most households feel the same because they haven't seen a salary increase in 20 or 30 years in real terms. And actually, many of those people may lose their jobs, Steve, it seems. 
Yeah, one quick comment from me. I would argue that you're absolutely right, but I would argue that there is inflation in the system. If anybody uses a well-known international um, uh, shopping grocery, online grocery group, you'll notice a 16% increase in your groceries there, plus the unemployment side of things. You talk about people in work, Jeffrey, with their income not going up. Well, I would argue that a lot of people are terrified about losing their jobs. Let's just go back to that employment data. Just under 3 million claimant counts, so holding steady at around about 4% UK unemployment rate. And of course, we just talking about the UK here, let alone other countries, but up to 9 million people on furlough. Now, if I was on furlough at the moment, I would be terrified about going back to work because I've heard many stories anecdotally. I've spoken to many bosses and people and a lot of people on furlough, they've got to be very careful. I'm, 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 they haven't got to be careful. They must be absolutely terrified because I'm not entirely sure that every one of those jobs will come back again uh, once they're off furlough later in the year. Yeah, and I think there's a certain amount of myopia as well about how the C-suite are behaving at this point. I don't know what what you feel about that, but the the FT had a piece, I think, yesterday just saying that a lot of, uh, or a number of FTSE 100 bosses are back to full pay after taking a brief cut because of COVID-19. And elsewhere, I know a lot of employees are having to take pay cuts here, even as their own managers are well compensated through share programmes. So it does feel as though there's a uh, an element of tone deafness in the C-suite about, you know, oh. all being in this together. Jeff, you know how I feel about this. And I did a stat, was it this week or last? I forget, I think it was this week, on, on Street Signs. I'll do it again now for Scorebox viewers. In the 1950s and 1960s, a median salary compared to an average CEO salary was around about 20 to 30 times, i.e. your CEO earned 20 to 30 times more than your median income of your employees as well. That figure by last year had gone up to, what was it, 360 times. So are those CEOs in the C-suite, which are paying themselves an average in the S&P of 13.8 to $14 million, where their median income of their employees is around about thirty eight dollars to $40,000 as well? Are they completely blind about what this is doing to the prospects of capitalism going forward? I don't know. I'm a capitalist, Jeff, but that doesn't sound right to me. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.